The following episode is a read aloud from certain pages on our website, 21ctownball.com. Twenty-first Century Town Ball is a bat and ball game based upon the version of baseball played in Massachusetts before the Civil War. We took the original rules of the Massachusetts game and projected them to what we believe the game would have become if that Massachusetts style of play had won out over that of New York as America's national pastime. Although this game has its origins in the 19th century, it was not brought to completion until the 21st. We've been playing this game regularly ever since and have become convinced that this may be the greatest game on the planet. This is our mission statement. Over-commercialization, steroid use, and poor management have led to the decline of baseball in recent years. However, the game of baseball itself is not completely without blame for its own demise. Town Ball is a compilation of the very best of what baseball has had to offer in all its various forms throughout the ages. Our mission is to bring people back to the game. And our vision statement is written as follows. We agree with many historians and baseball players across the nation that the version of baseball played in Massachusetts in the 19th century was superior to that played in New York in many ways. However, we also recognize that the Massachusetts game in its original form could not have won out over the New York game as our national pastime. Town ball, one word, is an attempt to rectify this. Our vision is to revive the Massachusetts style of play. What exactly was that style of play? Well, before we can talk about that, we have to go back a little bit further. Origins of the American Pastime. Baseball is America's national pastime. Families in every state of this nation have enjoyed playing some version of baseball for well over a century. Why is baseball our national pastime? What are the origins of the sport? Before the 20th century, every region in the United States had their own version of baseball that was played according to the local rules. Additionally, every region referred to their game by a different name. In New York State and the Great Lakes region, their respective versions of bat and ball were referred to as baseball, two words, or the game of the bases. In New England, baseball and round ball, two words, were used interchangeably. In Pennsylvania, Ohio, and the South, the term town ball, two words, was used. Even when the name of the game was the same, neighboring regions played according to different rules. The town ball of Philadelphia, for example, was a completely different game than that of Cincinnati. In New York and Massachusetts, where in both places the game was referred to as base ball, Massachusetts had their version, whereas New York had their own. Once interstate competitions became more common, in order to differentiate between the two games, base ball in New York came to be known as the New York game, and in Massachusetts, the Massachusetts game. The New York game is essentially what we now refer to as baseball one word. This is the game that eventually won out as the national pastime. The Massachusetts game, however, is almost completely unheard of in our nation today except among baseball historians, or in the various vintage baseball communities that are springing up nationally right now at a feverish rate. Why is it that the New York game came out to win out over the Massachusetts game as our national pastime? Most likely, there's more than one answer to this question. The first reason that the New York version won out is that the New York ballplayers were superior to those of any other state. They would win almost any contest that took place between them and the others, regardless of which version of ball was being played. This gave them a reputation of being the quote-unquote experts at the game of the bases. This clearly went a long way in propelling their version into becoming our national sport. The second reason was marketing. The members of the Knickerbockers Baseball Club, a team from New York, were not only great ballplayers but were also exceptional ambassadors of the game. 
They were the first ball club in this nation to codify for themselves their version of the game in written form. Once this was done, the other clubs found themselves scrambling to keep up. We here at 21st Century Tomball believe that there was a third and just as important reason as the other two as to why baseball came to dominate as our national sport over all other versions of baseball in the late 19th century. It comes down to mathematics. Baseball is perfect mathematically in all aspects. To begin with, the field is a square. It's one of the most basic and beautiful shapes of geometry. Second, almost every part of the game is broken down to the number three. The bases are 90 feet apart, 30 times three. The pitcher is 60 feet six inches from the batter, twice 30 feet three inches. There are nine innings, three sets of three, and each inning consists of six outs, one set of three for each team. There are three strikes for an out, and there are nine players per side, again, three sets of three. Even the World Series was originally a nine-game series. The Massachusetts game, in contrast, lacks the same mathematical appeal and playability. Yes, as in baseball, the field of the Massachusetts game is a square, but the batter's box is located between the first and the fourth stakes facing the center of the square. This not only makes for an awkward lack of balance regarding the respective distances between the bases, but with first being only 30 feet from the batting point and second 60 feet from first, this puts the pitching distance at a mere 35 feet from the batter. With a pitcher throwing swiftly, as is done in baseball today, this hardly makes for a fair contest between the pitcher and the batter. Ironically, it should be noted that swift pitching was originally allowed in the Massachusetts game, but not in the New York game. However, regardless of the geometric flaws, the Massachusetts game still happens to be an extraordinarily playable game. John Thorne, the official historian of Major League Baseball, agrees, quote, I think the New York game won out through superior public relations because I have played recreation games with the Massachusetts game, and it's a fantastically fun game both to play and watch. The New York game, in many measures, is inferior. In the Massachusetts game, you didn't have to stay on the base path while you were running, so you could lead your opponents on a merry chase into the outfields and beyond." End quote. But with the dominance of the Knickerbockers over the bat and ball arena, together with the advantage of the mathematics being in their favor, once Boston's Tri-Mountain Baseball Club defected to the New York version in 1857, it wasn't long before the Massachusetts game was destined to become a mere footnote in the history of baseball in this nation. We here at 21st Century Tomball have aspired to revive the great game of baseball played in Massachusetts in the 19th century, but not in its original form. In 21st Century Tomball, we have kept the square, but instead of batting from right between the first and fourth stakes, as is done in the original Massachusetts version, we started with a distance of 110 feet and then cut the stake line into the mean and extreme ratio making first stake 42 feet from the batter. We then used the Fibonacci sequence to determine the remaining distances between each of the bases so that second is 68 feet from first and the rest of the stakes are all 110 feet apart. The fourth and final stake would have ended up on the batting and first stake line if we were to keep to the original design, but we extended the distance between third and fourth to be equal to that between second and third and then completed the square by adding a fifth stake back behind the batter in line with first and second. The field now creates two golden rectangles and two squares within the infield. Thus, 21st Century Townball has a geometric appeal and playability at least equivalent to that of modern baseball. And finally, in keeping with this theme of perfect mathematics in baseball, we've made every aspect of 21st Century Townball in accord with the golden ratio. The Fibonacci Factor Every aspect of 21st century tomball is based upon what is known as the Fibonacci Sequence. What is the Fibonacci Sequence? The Fibonacci Sequence is found by adding two consecutive numbers of the sequence to find the next number, starting with 0 and 1. Here are the first 13 numbers of the Fibonacci Sequence. 0, 1, 1, Two, three, five. One, 
two, five! Lisa! Three! Eight, 13, 21, 34, 55, 89, 144. What's unique about the Fibonacci sequence is that as the numbers get bigger, the ratio formed by any two consecutive numbers in the sequence approaches a constant. This ratio formed by this constant and unity is known as the golden ratio. Here are all the ways in which the Fibonacci sequence is used in the formation of 21st century town ball. There is one ball, one field, and one out per inning. There are two teams, three strikes, and five stakes on the field. A team must be leading by five runs to win. The batter stands in a five by eight foot box when batting. A team must score at least eight runs to win. There are 13 players per team, and there is a run cap at 13 runs to win. The batter must run twice 21 feet to first stake, and twice 34 feet to second. The zone is half 34 inches wide and half 55 inches high. The rest of the stakes are all twice 55 feet apart. The playing field, the zone, and the batter's box all make golden rectangles. The playing field makes a golden spiral. The pitching line is a part of that spiral. The height of the zone above the ground is also found using a golden spiral. The zone is proportional to the human body according to the golden ratio. Take the average male height, about 72 inches, and divide it by the golden ratio and you get 45 inches. Dividing again gives 27.5 inches. Dividing one more time gives 17 inches. The Fibonacci zone is thus 27.5 by 17 inches. Twice 27.5 and twice 17 are both Fibonacci numbers, 55 and 34 respectively. Three inches are subtracted from each dimension of the Fibonacci zone to get the physical dimensions of the zone to account for the size of the ball. Those physical dimensions are 24.5 by 14 inches and the size of the ball is assumed to be three inches in diameter. Incidentally, the width of home plate in modern baseball is also 17 inches. If you divide the average male height of 72 inches by the golden ratio twice, it also gives you the distance between the navel and the hollow beneath the kneecaps. Thus, the vertical dimensions of the zone is equal to the approximate distance between the navel and the hollow beneath the kneecap of the average person, and the horizontal dimensions of the same is equal to that between the hollow beneath the kneecap and the bottom of the feet. But enough about math. We need to get back to the Massachusetts game. The Massachusetts game. During the first half of the 19th century, every region in the United States had their own version of baseball that they enjoyed, and Massachusetts was no exception. In fact, many historians today consider the version played in Massachusetts to be the early arch rival of that of New York as our national pastime. Before the Civil War, many in Massachusetts were appalled at the thought of the New York style of play ever infiltrating into their state as the standard bat and ball game for their region. Although they recognized the superiority of the New York game to their own in some aspects, the Massachusetts style of play had a long history in the region, and the proud citizens of the state weren't about to trade in their free-flowing country style of play for the uptown version of New York. For example, unlike in the New York game, the Massachusetts game had no foul territory. Batters were free to hit the ball in every direction. Any ball that was hit by the batter was considered to be live and in play. Moreover, base runners were not required to remain within the base paths while advancing from base to base. A runner could take the fielders, as described by John Thorne, onto a merry chase into the outfield and beyond if he wanted to. However, with the rise in popularity of the New York game sweeping through the country, the need became apparent to ball players in Massachusetts to organize their efforts in order to ensure the longevity of their state's version of SWAT. Ten baseball clubs in Massachusetts came together in 1858 to form what was then called the Massachusetts Association of Baseball Players. For the most part, these organizations were committed to the Massachusetts style of play and they feared that their citizens might succumb to the pressure to conform to the ever-larging influence of their neighboring state. In 1857, 
the Knickerbockers, who have been the first baseball team in America to sit down and write for themselves a set of rules for their version of the game, attempted to standardize how baseball should be played in America by convening under the presumptuous title the National Association of Baseball Players. One of the ten clubs of the Massachusetts Association of Ballplayers, the Tri-Mountains, had already resolved to conform to the new set of rules drafted by the Knickerbockers that previous year. When the Tri-Mountains made their intentions clear to the other clubs of the MABPP in that first meeting in 1858, the other clubs were indignant and they refused to play ball with them for a year. They then drafted for themselves their own set of rules by which ball was to be played in their state. But with the defection of the Tri-Mountains to the New York style of play, the Knickerbockers had gotten a foothold in the state, and it wasn't long before the Massachusetts style of play gave way. Once Massachusetts surrendered, the host of other versions of ball played in this nation likewise fell one by one to the more refined game of New York. In time, the New York game came to be known as just baseball and any other version of bat and ball was retroactively dubbed town ball. The national pastime was born. All that is now left of the Massachusetts game in this country is the list of 21 rules put together for us by the Massachusetts Association of Ballplayers in 1858. Here's the complete set of 21 rules that the MABBP codified for themselves in that year. Consult the Book of Armaments. Armaments, Chapter 2. Verses 9 to 21. The ball must weigh not less than two, nor more than two and three quarters ounces of Woudepois. It must measure not less than six and a half, nor more than eight and a half inches in circumference, and must be covered with leather. The bat must be round and must not exceed two and a half inches in diameter in the thickest part. It must be made of wood and may be of any length to suit the striker. Four bases or bounds shall constitute a round. The distance from each base shall be 60 feet. The bases shall be wooden stakes projecting four feet from the ground. The striker shall stand inside of a space of four feet in diameter at equal distance between the first and fourth bases. The thrower shall stand 35 feet from and on a parallel line with the striker. The catcher shall not enter within the space occupied by the striker and must remain upon his feet in all cases while catching the ball. The ball must be thrown, not pitched or tossed, to the bat, on the side preferred by the striker and within reach of his bat. The ball must be caught flying in all cases. Players must take their knocks in the order in which they are numbered, and after the first inning is played, the turn will commence with the player succeeding the one who lost in the previous inning. The ball being struck at three times and missed, and caught each time by a player on the opposite side, the striker shall be considered out. Or, if the ball be ticked or knocked and caught on the opposite side, the striker shall be considered out. But if the ball is not caught after being struck at three times, it shall be considered a knock, and the striker obliged to run. Should the striker stand at the bat without striking at good balls thrown repeatedly at him for the apparent purpose of delaying the game or of giving advantage to players, the referees, after warning him, shall call one strike. And if he persists in such action, two and three strikes. When three strikes are called, he shall be subject to the same rules as if he struck at three fair balls. A player having possession of the first base, when the ball is struck by the succeeding player, must vacate the base, even at the risk of being put out. And when two players get on one base, either by accident or otherwise, the player who arrived last is entitled to the base. If a player, while running the bases, be hit with the ball thrown by one of the opposite side, before he has touched the home bound while off a base, he shall be considered out. A player, after running the four bases, on making the home bound, shall be entitled to one tally. In playing all match games, when one is out, the side shall be considered out. In playing all match games, 100 tallies shall constitute the game, the making of which by either club, that club shall be judged the winner. Not less than 10, nor more than 14 players from each club shall constitute a match in all games person engaged on either side shall not withdraw during the progress of the match unless he be disabled or by the consent of the opposite party. The referees shall be chosen as follows. One from each club who shall agree upon a third made from some club belonging to this association if possible. Their decision shall be final and binding upon both parties. Finally, Rule 21. The tallymen shall be chosen in the same manner as the referees.
21st Century Town Ball. So, to review, there were plenty of reasons for the New York version of baseball winning out over that of Massachusetts as our national pastime. Most notably, the geometry of the New York version makes the game both aesthetically pleasing as well as playable. The Massachusetts version, in contrast, has an awkward geometry, putting the pitching distance too close to the batter, making it not suitable as a national game. Many who have played both, however, recognize that there are aspects of the Massachusetts version that make it superior to that of New York. What if there was a game that had the geometric appeal and playability of the New York version, and yet the aspects of that of Massachusetts that made it so popular in that state for decades before the dominance of the former in this nation? 21st Century Town Ball is an attempt to be just that. Below is a list of the aspects of 21st Century Town Ball that make it a terrific game. You will see that most of these aspects are exactly in agreement to the 1857 Dedham rules of the Massachusetts version, whereas a few of them are unique. For those that are unique to 21st Century Town Ball, we tried to find a precedent for each rule from other variants of bat and ball games played in this country. Here are the aspects of 21st Century Town Ball that are in agreement with the 1858 Dedham rules of the Massachusetts game. The use of stakes as bases. The fact that first stake is at a right angle from the pitching area. Counterclockwise base running. The home stake not being at the batting point. Swift pitching. One out, all out rule. Pegging the runners is allowed. No walks. No foul balls. Playing up to a given number of runs to win. Unlimited number of innings played, the number of players on a team, a batted ball caught on a fly is an out, three strikes are an out, the catcher must catch a ball struck at to be a strike. Here are the aspects of 21st Century Town Ball that are unique. In 21st Century Town Ball, the batting order can change after each round. This idea is from cricket, where after each inning or round, the batting order can likewise change. This aspect in 21st Century Town Ball is necessary given how difficult it is to score. In 21st Century Town Ball, there is a physical strike zone behind the batter, where if the pitcher hits the zone with the ball, the batter is out. Both cricket and stool ball have a similar aspect. In contrast, although baseball has an invisible strike zone, so to speak, that is called by an umpire, hitting the strike zone in baseball is only a strike and not an out, except on the third strike. This aspect in 21st Century Town Ball is necessary so as to give the batter an incentive to swing the bat. Thirdly, in 21st Century Town Ball, the batter can steal first without having hit the ball. This idea is also from cricket, where the batsman can run at any time after the ball is bowled, even without having hit the ball. In contrast, in baseball, a batter can steal first only when a third strike is dropped. This aspect in 21st Century Town Ball makes for a very lively game since the ball is technically in play at all times after the first pitch of the inning. Fourthly, in 21st Century Town Ball, a batter does not have to attempt to advance to first base after having hit the ball. This idea is also from cricket, where although the batter does not have to run after having hit the ball, the batting team has a limited number of overs in which to score runs. In 21st Century Town Ball, this restriction is provided by the fact that if the batter does not advance on a batted ball, a strike is called against him, and that the batter must attempt to advance to first on the third strike. This aspect in 21st Century Town Ball is also necessary because of how difficult it is to score. Finally, and fifthly, I'll give you five good reasons. One, two, three, four, five. Those are good reasons. And fifthly, 21st Century Town Ball makes use of the Fibonacci sequence in determining the distances of the base paths. Although the precedent for the use of the Fibonacci sequence is not expressly found in any other version of baseball, what is found in other versions of baseball is the idea of perfection in the geometry of the field, most notably in baseball and in cricket. What if the Massachusetts game had won out? Over the course of its history, the New York game went through several revisions before it became the version that we all play today. For example, in the New York game, swift pitching was originally not allowed. Moreover, fielders could catch a fly ball after one bounce to retire a batter. The Massachusetts game, however, has not had the same opportunity to be time-tested until becoming national game worthy. But if Massachusetts had not succumbed to the pressure to conform to the version of baseball played by the rest of the nation, what would the game look like today? Would it still be played according to the Dedham rules of 1857? Or would it have changed over time to adjust the various rule flaws to make it more playable 
as in the case of the New York game. We here at 21st Century Town Ball have researched every aspect of the original Massachusetts version of baseball and have determined that if the Massachusetts style of play had won out over that of New York as our national pastime, then a version not too much unlike 21st Century Town Ball would still be played today. Swift pitching in the Massachusetts game. Let's take a quick second to look back on some of those rules from the Massachusetts game and how they interacted with the new rule set we made in 21st Century Town Ball. Rule 8 of the 1858 Dedham Rules states the following. The ball must be thrown, not pitched or tossed, to the bat. Rule 3 of the 1854 Knickerbockers Rules states the following. The ball must be pitched, not thrown, for the bat. The immediate question is, what did it mean in the 19th century for the ball to be pitched, tossed, and thrown? Regarding the Massachusetts game, a newspaper article from 1856 stated that the ball was thrown, not pitched or tossed. It was thrown with vigor, too, that made it whistle through the air with a solid smack in the catcher's hands." End quote. Indeed, in the 19th century, to throw a ball meant to throw it overhand, the way you would throw a rotten apple at a tree to see it explode. To pitch a ball was to lob it underhand the way you would pitch a horseshoe onto a peg. To toss a ball is to throw it more vigorously underhand, not too unlike what fast-pitch softball players do today. Thus, it's clear from this language that the Massachusetts game was originally intended to be a swift pitching type of game. That is, the ball was to be thrown, not pitched, to the batter. Whereas the New York game was originally intended to be a slow pitching type of game. That is, the ball was to be pitched, not thrown, to the batter. Indeed, the fact that there is a foul territory in the New York game is consistent with the notion that the game was originally intended to be a slow pitch game. In a slow pitch type of game, such as slow pitch softball or the New York game, the ball is expected to be put in play more often by the batter. Without foul balls, this would cause there to be too much area that the fielding team would need to cover. Therefore, the ball being fair only when it is hit in the forward direction makes sense. In contrast, in a fast pitch type of game, such as cricket or the Massachusetts game, it's more difficult to put the ball in play, so any ball hit by the batter, no matter what the direction, should be considered a fair ball. It should thus be noted that the original New York version of baseball was not actually baseball as we now know it. Rather, we would probably recognize it more as a game of slow-pitch softball. In fact, it's no coincidence that many who play the New York style of baseball in the nation play a version that is consistent with how the game was originally designed to be played. Indeed, slow-pitch softball is generally more common among amateurs than is the swift-pitching counterpart of baseball. Moreover, many of the more interesting hits, both in cricket as well as in 21st century town ball, are those that are hit back behind the batter. The fielders in both of these great games that play back behind are kept very busy. Being the swift pitching game that it is, this would also be true of baseball today if it were not for the foul territory. But alas, none of those great hits amount to much in the way of an offensive threat. What a wasted opportunity both for the fielder and the batter alike. Baseball is boring. There is something about bat and ball games that attracts so many people to them. Perhaps it's the act of hitting a moving object with a stick, or perhaps it's the challenge of trying to throw a ball past a batter, or perhaps it's the childlike game of tag that base running reminds all of us of. Even though baseball is our national pastime, if you asked the average American their thoughts about baseball, many if not most would probably use the adjective boring in their description of the game. In fact, it isn't for no reason that the number of people that play baseball in this nation is declining, whereas the number of people playing more exciting sports, such as soccer or basketball, is on the rise. We here at 21st Century Tomball believe that the reason the Massachusetts version of baseball is so much better than the New York version is because the aspects of baseball that are exciting are actually diminished in the New York version, whereas they are magnified in the Massachusetts version. What are the aspects of the New York version that make it so boring compared to the Massachusetts version? Here's what we think. First, the existence of a foul territory. It's not exactly clear why a foul territory was originally invented in the New York style of play. 
However, we can speculate as to some reasons. First, it could be that the existence of a foul territory allowed for spectators to view the game from a much closer proximity. This is actually a very good reason. However, we don't believe that this is a good enough reason as a trade-off for playability. Secondly, it could be that without the existence of a foul territory in baseball, it may be too easy to get on base. It seems that without a foul territory, a simple bunt down the extension of the first baseline back behind home plate would be a bread and butter base hit of the game. And with only nine players on the field, this would undoubtedly swing the balance too far in the direction of the offense. We here at 21st Century Tumball believe that the most likely reason for the creation of a foul territory is because the New York style of play was originally intended to be a slow pitch bat and ball game. Since we've already explained that swift pitching is more suitable for games that have no foul territory, that is, the Massachusetts version of baseball and cricket, slow pitching is more suitable for games that have a foul territory, like the New York version of baseball or slow pitch softball. With the New York style of play being a slow pitch game, the ball was intended to be put in play by the batter more frequently as it is in typical slow pitch softball today. The fielding aspect of the game was intended to be more of the focus of the action than it is in modern baseball. This is actually a very good idea, for indeed, in slow pitch softball, the pitcher is not a significant part of the game. Outs are generally recorded by the fielders, and from a fielding point of view, softball might be one of the most fun games out there. However, the pitcher-batter duel is an important part of baseball today, and many people like the idea of a swift pitching game over a slow pitch game. It's for good reason that cricket is the second most played sport in the world, only to soccer. Fans and players alike enjoy the pitching duel that takes place in a swift pitching type of bat and ball game. Similarly, in the Massachusetts style of play, unlike in baseball, the swift pitching pitcher and batter duel doesn't take away from the playability of the game. A ball hit backwards is not a foul ball in the Massachusetts style, as is the case in cricket. Rather, it's very likely to be a great hit. However, because of the foul ball aspect, the New York style of play is not the version in which to embrace swift pitching. Many great hits in baseball are foul, and the ball is not put into play very easily. This contributes to baseball being a very boring game. In fact, the next time you're watching a Major League Baseball game on TV, consider the number of foul balls that are hit in an inning. What if all of those hits had been considered fair? To what degree would that add to the excitement of the game? To put it simply, we here at 21st Century Townball regard baseball to be a very inside-the-box type of game. This is because there are way too many situations in which the ball is considered to be out of play. Bat and ball games in general are much more exciting when every hit, even those outside the lines, are in. The second reason that we think the New York version is boring compared to the Massachusetts game is due to the existence of walks. In the New York style of play, a batter who receives a certain number of bad pitches is granted a base on balls. Of course, the motivation for this rule is to give the pitcher an incentive to actually throw the ball into the strike zone within reach of the batter. The theory is that if the ball is thrown more often within reach of the batter, the ball will be hit more often and therefore put into play more frequently, making for a more exciting game. However, although this gives the pitcher the incentive to throw the ball in or near the strike zone, the reality is that this actually gives the batter an incentive to not swing the bat and therefore not put the ball into play. Getting on base is actually very difficult in baseball, so if a pitcher is going to throw enough bad pitches, why not just watch them go by and take a free walk to first? In 21st century town ball, there are no balls and there are no walks. The pitcher can throw as many pitches outside the reach of the batter as he wishes. What then is the incentive for a pitcher to throw the ball into the hitting zone? None, except that not doing so will increase the pitcher's pitch count. This becomes a critical issue for a game in which there is an indefinite number of innings per game as well as no player substitutions allowed. The third reason that we find the New York version to be boring in comparison to the Massachusetts is the existence of an inning limit. One of the worst ideas in the creation of the New York style of play is the idea of an inning limit for the game. From one standpoint, it makes sense why it was invented. It makes for a convenient time limit to the game that is fair to both parties. However, the idea of an inning limit in the game of baseball is a bad idea for several reasons. First, it's not a very intuitive thing to keep track of as a player or as a fan. Think about it. How many times have you attended a ball game with someone who didn't realize the game just ended when it did? 
Contrast this with the Massachusetts version where a team needs to score a certain number of runs to win. Everyone is constantly aware of the score because the score determines the end. Secondly, in a game where there is an inning limit, like in the New York version, it's easy to lose hope when the outlook isn't so brilliant for your team when they're down by, say, four runs going into the eighth inning. Of course, there's always the hope that springs eternal of your team rallying for a comeback, but that hope is so much less misplaced in a game where being down by four runs just as the pitchers are beginning to tire allows for so many more possibilities. This is because in 21st century town ball, there is no inning limit for the game. The game continues to be played until a team either reaches 13 runs or is ahead of the other team by five runs after having scored at least eight. For this reason, no one really knows how long the game is going to be. It could last from one inning to 63. For example, let's take the worst case scenario. Suppose in a 21st century town ball game, your team is down seven to nothing. In that case, your opponent only needs one run to win the game. But if you have a defense that can hold out long enough, as long as the other team does not score that final run, they can't win. Then once your team scores just four runs, you're back in the game. The opposition now needs two runs to win instead of just one. Suddenly, the outlook is brilliant indeed. Thirdly, one of the most cherished events in baseball is the walk-off hit. Think Kirk Gibson or Carlton Fisk, each with a game-winning home run in the World Series. This actually doesn't happen very often in baseball because of how the game is structured. In contrast, because of how the Massachusetts style of play works, exactly half of all 21st century tomball games played are won with either walk-off hits or some kind of walk-off scoring. What an exciting game indeed. And lastly, as mentioned earlier, the lack of an inning limit serves as an incentive for the pitcher to throw the ball into the hitting zone of the batter. Typically, we've found the average game to be just under two hours. But with the length of game being so variable, the pitchers now have an incentive to throw the ball either at the zone or within reach of the batter, because if a pitcher throws a ball outside the zone and the batter doesn't swing, then he's just risen his pinch count by one. With a good pitcher's pitch count average being right around 100 pitches, it's the need to keep one's pitch count low that is the needed incentive to throw the ball within reach of the batter. The fourth and final reason why we think the New York version of play is boring compared to the Massachusetts style is the lack of being able to steal first base. Although not in the original Massachusetts style of play, we believe that allowing for a batter to attempt to run to first, even without the ball having been batted, makes for a very exciting game. Once the first pitch is made to a batter, the ball is in play for the rest of that at-bat. A pitcher who, even for an instant, takes his eye off a batter that he's facing may soon find that the player he was about to pitch to is on base. If you were going to sit down and calculate how much time the ball is actually in play in an average baseball game, I think you'll find that for the hours it takes to play the game, the ball is only in play for a few minutes. Contrast this with 21st Century Town Ball, where the ball is, after the first pitch of the inning, always in play. In such a game, the thinking aspect abounds, and the hidden ball trick is the norm. The Massachusetts game and the zone, a match made in heaven. When we first tried out the Massachusetts game in the 13th year of this 21st century, we knew we had stumbled across a gem of a game. The game has a flow to it that just smacks of raw, innocent fun. One aspect, however, that we felt needed to be improved upon was with respect to the dynamic between the pitcher and the batter. We really liked the fact that there were no walks in the game. However, we also realized that even without walks, although there was incentive enough for the pitcher to throw the ball within the reach of the batter, there was really no incentive whatsoever for the batter to swing the bat. In baseball, this is rectified by an imaginary strike zone defined as, quote, that area over home plate, the upper limit of which is a horizontal line at the midpoint between the top of the shoulders and the top of the uniform pants, and the lower level is a line at the hollow beneath the kneecap, and it's determined by the batter's stance as the batter is prepared to swing at a pitched ball, end quote. If the ball is thrown within that zone, and if the batter does not swing, then a strike is called against the batter. We realized a similar need for some kind of a strike zone, such that if the pitcher pitched into that zone, then the batter was in some way obligated to swing. 
We started out by putting a bucket on top of a batting tee behind the batter and declared, as in cricket, that if the ball hit the bucket, then the batter was called out. We soon realized that it was in the interest of the catcher to have a zone that one could see through. Hence, we constructed a wiffle ball type zone made of either metal or plastic pipes along the truck netting. Some argued early on that if the ball hits the zone, then it should only be a strike and not an out, so as to give the batter the advantage. However, we realized that such a thing would interfere with gameplay since the catcher would not have the opportunity to throw out a base stealer on a ball thrown within the zone. But if it is assumed that the batter is out upon the ball hitting the zone just once, then the fact that there is only one out per inning prevents the zone from ever interfering with gameplay. In other words, if the ball hits the zone, then the batter is out. If the batter is out, then the inning is over. Therefore, if the ball hits the zone, then the inning is over. Therefore, the zone never interferes with gameplay. Moreover, the fact that the batter doesn't return to the batting point to score makes it possible for a physical zone such as this to even exist in the Massachusetts style of play. This is not the case for baseball, since a physical zone would again get in the way of gameplay, as in the case where a catcher may be trying to tag a base runner out who is attempting to steal home. Such a situation doesn't even take place in 21st century town ball, since the home stake is not at the same place as the batting point. We've heard of at least one baseball entrepreneur trying to incorporate a similar idea into the New York style of play. There really is no way for this to work, however, as this would interfere with gameplay, both in the case of the ball being pitched into the zone where there is less than one out, as well as in the case where a runner is attempting to score. It appears that, indeed, the zone and the Massachusetts style of play is a match made in heaven. Why the name Town Ball? As I previously mentioned, every region in the United States had their own version of baseball that they played according to the local rules. Not only this, but the game of bat and ball was referred to in each region by a different name. Even though Massachusetts and New York had very different versions of the game, the name of their respective games was both referred to as baseball, two words. Similarly, although Ohio and Philadelphia had very different games, their respective games were both referred to as town ball, two words. Suppose a family from Ohio were to witness a baseball game while traveling through the Massachusetts region. Their conversation might sound something like this. Dad, what kind of game are they playing over there? Oh, I suppose it must be some version of town ball. Thus, it could be said that to the family from Ohio, any version of bat and ball, regardless of where it was being played, would be referred to as town ball. And to the family from Massachusetts, any version of bat and ball, regardless of where it was played, would be referred to as baseball. Thus, baseball, town ball, and round ball are really synonymous terms for any version of ball that was being played in this country in the 19th century. However, once the New York game began to dominate as the national game in this country, the term baseball was soon thereafter adopted to refer only to the New York version of the game. All the other versions of bat and ball were then retroactively dubbed town ball. Thus, since 21st century town ball is not baseball, it must therefore, for historical reasons, be a version of town ball, two words. And since this game has been reinvented in this century, it is therefore a 21st century version of town ball, hence our name. Vintage Baseball there's a longing today in the hearts of many a baseball player to go back to playing ball the way it was played when it was, quote, just a game. When we think of the glory days of baseball, most people think of Jolton Joe, the splendid splinter, and the great Bambino. Indeed, the early part of the 20th century was a time to remember, not only for baseball, but also for the nation. Baseball has its way of telling our story like nothing else. Baseball seems to have lost much of its following, however, in the past few decades, especially considering how the rise of over-commercialism, steroid use, and the television set have impacted the game. In response, vintage baseball leagues have sprung up at a feverish rate since the 1990s, all in a quest to revisit our roots so as to find the essence of the game we love, the game we all long for. These leagues generally keep to the New York version of play, but only according to certain rule sets written in various years as the game developed over time, especially toward the middle and end of the 19th century. 
Attempts are made to reconstruct these old games in exact detail, from the clothing worn by the umpire to the banter spewed on the field. Some, to be sure, dig deeper into our roots to the more seemingly exotic versions played in Philadelphia, Massachusetts, Ohio, and other states in the 19th century before the Civil War. In this former golden era of baseball, the game was evolving at a rapid pace. Baseball was then a product of a free-flowing process of trial and error of various rules that could change on a whim, so long as the players from both teams agreed that it was for the betterment of those involved in the immediate experience. Indeed, it was a very mid-19th century phenomenon to invent new games. It was a time when leisure was permitted. It was a time when a daily diversion was welcomed as our country was pushed further toward the brink of war. It was a time when the spirit of adventure and exploration was defining what it really meant to be American. But with the passing of the Civil War, many returned to baseball in an attempt to put aside our differences and to redefine what it meant to be united as a nation. And it was in the spirit of this unity that the nation, forsaking all others, rallied around the New York game and elevated it into what we now refer to as our national pastime. But as a result of this step toward healing, we left behind an array of bat and ball games that, until that time, were legitimate contenders as our national game. Thus, vintage enthusiasts today who look no further than the New York style of play forget the deeper roots from whence our national game emerged. We had asked earlier what the Massachusetts game would have looked like today if it had won out over the New York game as the national pastime. What if we asked the same question but the other way around? What if the 21st century version of the Massachusetts game had happened upon the ballists of the mid-19th century at the peak of the exploration era in which our national pastime finds its inception. Would they have embraced it? Or would they have dismissed it on account of it not being of their time? 21st century tumble has a vintage flair to be sure. However, the vintage purists who will only embrace a game because it's found in the past in its exact form are missing the real spirit of the era to which they strive to return. The spirit of vintage baseball is not about strictly adhering to a rule set solely because of the date of its invention. Rather, the spirit of vintage baseball, indeed the spirit of the 19th century, is about finding a game that really plays. 21st century town ball embodies everything about baseball that was alive with real sport in the former glory days of baseball. Moreover, this game lives up to its name. It's a version of town ball for today and yet finds its roots in the past. Indeed, for those of us who play this game, we all feel that we're a part of something bigger, something simultaneously past and present, something that keeps us coming back for more. Those of us that play 21st Century Town Ball feel that we're not only playing a great game, but we're playing this great game now, when it is just a game. For those of you listening to this series, we want to say thank you so much for tuning in to this first attempt at putting the story of 21st century town ball to audio, all in one cohesive narrative. Special thanks goes to friend of the podcast, John, for loaning his mic to the motherboard for coming up with this idea several months ago, and to all the guests who entertained us, enlightened us, and emboldened us. Thank you briefly to Rylan and Ethan for editing tips. But lastly, and above all, thank you to Daniel Jones, not just the father of the game, but more accurately, the guide, the leader and the follower, the inventor and the historian, the confident one as well as the meek one, the teacher and the student, the referee and the schemer, a blend of opposites, yet unwavering in his principles. Here are some words from him found in an interview way back in 2020 with some occasional table bumping. Ironically, I, I, I wasn't always 
this way at all. Um, I, I probably was. It just didn't. People didn't think of me as a leader. I remember one one friend I had in particular in Georgia. He said, "Yeah, there's two types of people in this world: there's leaders and followers, and you are a follower." He said that to me really clear. So, just my my story of becoming a leader just is kind of intertwined with just a lot of really extreme uh, situations, and it's, sure. it hasn't always been easy for me. There's actually four projects that I believe God's given me to work on, right? There's the translation we just talked about, there's Tomball, which you know about. Um, I study Chinese, but not as much anymore, just because I don't have time. But then the third one is, I'm, I'm basically making an update to Euclid's elements using set theory. And so, the way I see myself is I'm, I'm breaking ground for people. This isn't just about my class tomorrow. This is about like everything, every decision I'm making, I'm seeing it as like a fractal of the bigger picture of what I'm trying to do. Like every little decision I make, he was faithful in the small things, faithful in much. I don't want to boast about this, but I guess I'm a person with a lot of faith. That's just how I view myself. I believe that I'm going to do something really small and God's going to use it to like change the world. So every decision I make in the classroom, like I, in my imagination, I imagine myself leading and breaking ground for like hundreds of people. And so I kind of see myself leading, not so much like, hey guys, come on over, even though I do that kind of thing, mm -hmm. but leading as in like making decisions that I believe will have an impact on other people. I'm having a lot of fun yeah. with it. When I taught at University High School, the town ball club was essentially all the riffraff. Some would probably say the same thing, like a lot, a lot of bad kids would, would come my way and join the town ball and everything because they, I think they saw like an alternative to having to be the perfect UHS model kid that the school was trying to foster. So I, I, try, to, I try to lead this perspective where doing the right thing doesn't have to fit anybody's mold. Like doing the right thing could be playing, playing town ball even though people might not see that as really valuable. You don't always have to have a very black or very white yeah. answer yeah. to every single choice you make. Yeah. Mm. Like that's when my relationship with my students really took off. Switching to the Tomball group.